Thank you so much, Ron. Ron and, and his family are really glue, as you might have caught on there, glue in that area. Uh, if you're grade six to eight, you're heading out. See you guys. My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the, I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest. I'm the luckiest pastor in, uh, in the world to be a part of this church. Ron Lafka, I just said, he's a glue in the Central America. Very important what they do and, uh, and very important because it's a whole network of churches across borders that they work with and support and, um, and uh, a strong network of churches means strong individual churches, which means strong outreach to individuals. It's just, it's just so important that we have them there. Um, there isn't a dozen of them there. There's just them there. So just to put that into perspective, the Lapkas are the only Canadian missionaries in that network of churches, and they are playing a very vital role. So anyhow, if you get an opportunity after church, I invite you to check out their table and talk with them. And uh, we're very excited uh, for uh, some of the beginning stages of, uh, you know, some of the baby steps of sort of looking at uh, how we can be a good support to them. All right, let, we're going to, I'm going to just kick off my message here. It'll be a short message. I'm seeing the clock. So let's just watch this video real quick. I'm convinced more now than ever that people need to be equipped to speak the gospel into the everyday stuff of life. We live in a day and age where people are asking questions, but often we don't have the answers. Instead of giving transforming information or transforming hope, we often give people moralism or legalism. We tell them to try harder or to change their behavior, but what people need is not behavior modification. They need gospel heart transformation. We as a church need to grow in what it looks like to speak the truth of the gospel into the everyday stuff of life, to speak the truth of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' present work on our behalf before God the Father and his future return to make all things new. And it's not just the church. I need it. I need to learn how to speak the truth of the gospel into the everyday stuff of life because I struggle with unbelief. I struggle with putting my confidence in my behavior instead of in Jesus and his work on my behalf. I often believe that it's my work that saves people instead of the work of God that saves people. I need the gospel. We need the gospel. The world needs the gospel. But we need to know how to speak the gospel fluently to the everyday stuff of life, the stuff that people struggle with, the unbeliefs they, they feel and experience, and the real issues that our society is walking through. You and I need to grow in being gospel-fluent people. Welcome to the Gospel Fluency series. Last week we had a little bit of an introduction to this, and this week I'm going to take us into well, week, week one. So many of you are already in life groups, that's small groups that meet on a weekly basis, and you're, you're studying um, um, complementary material to what we're, we're sharing on Sunday mornings, and uh, we're excited for the journey that we're going on. I encourage you, even if you're not a part of a small group, to track with us for the next number of weeks. Uh, if, you're, if you're with us for the next eight, nine weeks, uh, whether you're here phys uh, physically or listening on podcast, uh, we think it'll be uh, a beginning step in a transformative journey for you. And we really want to take a beginning step in a transformative journey for our church 
to becoming more and more gospel fluent. Um, this is not the first church I've been a pastor in. Uh, this is the second. Uh, the first church I was in for eight years up in northern Saskatchewan, Nipawin, Saskatchewan, uh, had a, one day a, a woman walked into the office. I was the youth pastor, and with me was the receptionist or slash administrator, Kathy. And this woman walked into the office and began to tell a sad tale, a real tale, sad tale, about what was going on in her life and in the life of her family. And as she began to share this tale, we listened for a while, and then when a moment sort of came at the end of her telling her tale, we said, wow, you know, that's, that's really difficult and that's tough, and can we pray for you? And her response was, no, thank you. I, f- I find that things go a lot better when you don't pray. And that sort of set me back, because I never ever had it, you know, I was 22 or 3 at the time, and I was new to being a church pastor, and, and I had never had anyone say that to me before. And it was especially surprising because she was not a new person to the church. She had been in the church since she was a little girl. And, uh, in fact, she was one of the pillar families of the church and and part of that. And I, I, I remember sort of not knowing what to do. No thanks. I find that life goes better if I don't pray about things. I thought, she doesn't believe in prayer. And then I thought, what does she believe about God? What does she believe about God? Now, I want to fast forward to where I'm at today. Many years later, I'm not so harsh on this lady. I was a little bit in that moment. But I'm not so harsh on this lady because she was probably more honest than most. You see, unbelief is not something that just some Christians deal with. It's something that we all deal with. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, he's the guy in the video, uh, he makes a claim in, in his book, Gospel Fluence, he makes a claim. He says that everybody's an unbeliever. And I, I, first time I read it, I sort of cringed back and I said, well, that's not true. Some people have come to believe in Christ, to trust in his work and what he's done for them. And, and then there are people who haven't. So not everybody's the same. But he goes on to clarify what he means. Basically, that uh, everybody in at least some area of their life struggles with unbelief. Or in Jeff's terminology, in some areas of all of our lives, and if you take everybody in the room, everybody that could hear this on podcast, that there's probably an area in your life where you don't believe the truth about Jesus in a way that's applicable to that area of your life. Maybe it's just that the, the truth about that gospel hasn't, about the truth of Jesus has not sunk into that area of that life. It hasn't, it hasn't come and changed that area. It hasn't rewired how we think and how we believe and how we how we act. So I struggle with unbelief. I believe in Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord, as the one who has forgiven my sins, as the one who has made the way open for me to have a relationship with God the Father. I believe that. And yet, I don't believe all the time in every area or apply those beliefs, maybe that's a different way of saying it, to those areas of my life. I sometimes find myself bringing another story, a more dominant story, another narrative, another thought unto my thinking about my world. Because there are a lot of other voices that are are clamoring to be heard, that want the space in my brain and in my thoughts to tell their story. So, I can look at something, I'll give you a very simple illustration. How many times do you see ads for 
the fact you're not saving enough for your retirement. If you suck on that straw long enough, you're going to get sick. Why? Because it's a, it's a message of worry, worry. You don't have what you need. You're not there. You don't have it. You'll never have the time running out. Pressure, 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 pressure. If that becomes the dominant story in that area of my life, and I fail to bring the truth about Jesus, that he is my provider, that I look to him for my daily bread, not the latest stock prices, I'm not going to have peace in that area of my life. I'm going to miss out in, in many ways because I'm going to be frantic. I'm going to be driven. You'd say maybe that's an area of my life where I'm not currently believing the truths about Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do practical things. It doesn't mean that financial investment advisors are bad people and they can't help you. No, no, it doesn't mean any of that at all. It just means that there can be lots of areas, loads of areas in our lives where the truth about Jesus has not sunk in. What he's done for me through his life, his death and resurrection, and what he says about me, my new identity in relationship to him, sometimes has not yet been applied to those areas of thinking. And I think one of the reasons why is because we sometimes just separate those things. We say, well, God is about spiritual things. And then here's the practical things of life. So, 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 so God has something to say to my spiritual problems, but what about finances and marriage and sex and parenting and bullying and career and drugs and in-laws and, and depending on how you feel about your family, outlaws? What about all those things? Does the good news about Jesus have much to say about those things? The tagline for this series is that we're speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. The everyday stuff of life. What does the gospel have to say about this? What does the gospel have to say about this? And that's a question we're often not asking. You say, well, I, I, I got my, fun- I, I use that as an illustration. I've got my retirement plan. I figured it all out. Thank you, Dave Ramsey if you know who that is. But what does the gospel have to say about it? Right? People will come to me and they'll want counseling. And I don't do a lot of counseling because there's a great counseling center in town, Moose Jaw Christian Counseling Center, and they're actually much better trained, way more trained. You know, they've got master's degrees in this stuff. So I do counseling light. Uh, it's, it's less calories. It's like, it's like diet counseling, right? You, you do counseling with me, you're going to be starving for good counsel because it's diet counseling. But I do a little bit of it. And when people come and they, they, I say, well, what's up? Well, it's, it's parenting, it's marriage, it's, it's um, you know, finances, it's, it's career, whatever. And okay, well, I'll try to help you a little bit or at least listen a little bit or do what I can. And um, you know what I'm doing more of now? I'm asking this question. So if the presenting problem is, let's say, their marriage, you know, oh, you know, my wife or my husband or, or they're in the room together, each other, you know. I'm asking a new question. Instead of going, okay, what can I tell them about communication? What can I tell them about how to work out their finances? What can I tell them about how to uh, resolve conflict? What can I tell them about, because I do have, a, you know, sort of bag of tricks in some of those areas, not like a real counselor, but like a, you know, light counselor. 
the new question I'm asking is, how does the gospel apply to this problem? What does the truth about Jesus say to this situation? And if you can track from that problem to what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus says about us, and you can connect the dots, I think that's the beginning of getting fluent with the gospel. Because for a lot of people, the, the gospel is not, what does gospel mean? It means good news. Good news, Greek word, good news. But a lot of times when you tell people about the truth about Jesus, it seems so abstract sometimes, doesn't it? It seems so abstract. It seems so removed from their lives. And they say, but this is my problem. This is my real world problem. And you're telling me this stuff about Jesus did this thing 2,000 years ago and I don't see how that connects with my current life. And becoming gospel fluent is being able to take the good news about Jesus and being able to see how it relates to that area and share that with somebody in such a way so that that truth is good news to this area. That's what becoming gospel fluent looks like. And that's not just for other people, it's also for ourselves. Because some of those conversations that we need to have about the gospel, about where we don't believe, is with ourselves. Many of them are going to be with ourselves. So Jesus... Jesus has lots to do with everything. In fact, I was looking at some scriptures that talked about that. Let me just read a few. Colossians 1, 18 to 22 says about Jesus. He is Colossians 1, 18 to 22. I'm going to go through these quick because I've got a few. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything, how much? Just the spiritual stuff? No, everything. In everything, he might have the supremacy. So Jesus is over all things. And then it goes on to say, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself just the spiritual things, all things. So, Jesus is over all things, and through what he's done, he's going to reconcile or fix or restore everything, all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It says, once you, it gets personal, you were alienated from God. I can say, this is me. I was alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Jesus is over all things. Let me give you one more verse to sort of go along with this. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I always have to explain that second verse because it's just too many theological words. God knows you. He's got a destiny for you. He, and part of that destiny is to help you become like Jesus so that you'll fit really well in his spiritual family. Okay, that's the second verse, just in case. He knows you. He's got a destiny for you. He wants you to become like Jesus. That's part of the destiny. And then you'll fit really awesome in, as a part of his spiritual family. But the first part says, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So what parts of life is God concerned about? What parts of your life is God concerned about? All of it. What parts of life is God supreme over? 
every area. What parts of life does the gospel apply to? Every area. In fact, it'd be fascinating, I, I, and I'm not there yet, but I, I, I think this is where the, road, where the road goes in becoming gospel fluent. It'd be fascinating to get to the point where you could actually say, when you see a presenting problem, you say, what part of the gospel don't I yet believe for this area? What don't I believe about the gospel? That that's actually what you'd ask. You say, I'm, I'm struggling, this is, this is difficult. It seems like there's, sort of, there's something I must not believe about the gospel. So what are your areas of personal unbelief? That's what I want to talk about. What's your areas of personal unbelief? Where you say, the gospel hasn't soaked in there yet. I haven't come to, somehow something's not working there and I can't even trace it back yet, but hopefully I will as I, as I grow in gospel fluency, but somehow I've trusted Jesus to make me right with God. I am a believer, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I know that my afterlife is taken care of, but I, but I don't know how God wants to transform this area of my life. And I'm not quite sure I can see how the gospel helps me do that. So we're all, we all have areas where unbelief in the good news of Jesus is preventing life change. And maybe it's sometimes because we don't know how it, the gospel affects it. Or maybe it's just because the truths we have heard have been forgotten or crowded out by other messages. So we need to remind ourselves and each other what Jesus has done for us if we're going to be transformed. So how do you discover your area of personal unbelief? How do you discover it? You say, how do we begin that? I want to tell you something. And this is nasty, not nice, but condemnation is a clue. Condemnation is a clue. Do you know what condemnation is? It means you feel like accused and it, you feel like you know, the, the spotlight's on you and you don't look good in that spotlight. In fact, you want to hide from that spotlight. You want to shrink away. Or you want to stand in that spotlight and defend yourself for all you're worth. Or you want to point a finger in that spotlight to somebody else and blame them. But you are not comfortable being fully known. You really don't want people to see what's there. Now, there's a couple things that work there. There's a couple things that work in, in condemnation. In fact, there's, there's, there, the Bible tells us that in, in our struggle, in this area of condemnation, that there's, there's a few different characters involved. <laughs> when I was you know, a young boy, before there was WWE, there was WWF. F, you know, if you watched a lot of it, that's what your grades would be like, F. Uh, I watched a bit back in the day, and it was cleaner back then, by the way. I'm not recommending WWE. It's, not, it's actually taking quite a sour turn, and it's not, it's not very good, actually, for young boys. And WWF was tamer. 
I, you know, you'd cheer on your favorite people, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And, and I, remember, I remember watching matches, you know, Hulk Hogan was the best actor, I mean, professional wrestler. He was the best of the bunch because he would be in a match with another guy who was a bad character. You figured that out by the interviews. And, uh, and they were fighting. And then along would come another guy, the bad character's buddy, with a chair. And they were collapsible chairs, always. You know, it's never, they never had like a good, you know, anyhow, but bam, Hulk Hogan would down, go down to the mat. Now it was two on one. It was so unfair. And as a nine-year-old, you knew this because you knew what was fair in the world. And you'd be like, come on, Hulk Hogan. And look, it looks like he's practically unconscious, but then suddenly. <laughs> he's coming back. He's coming back. And the bad guys are nervous. And they see this and they're like, no, no, no. And they hit him again. And they do that kick, you know, the kick with the hop. Anyhow, and they're, and they're doing their best to, to, to keep him down. And, but he's shaking and he's shaking. And they're like pounding him and pounding him and pounding him. And you know what? Sometimes he got up on his own. But you know what? A lot of times it was that somebody who you didn't expect would come rushing to his aid. Right? So Hulk Hogan's getting pounded, and then suddenly another buddy comes to the side of the... But, of course, they have to play by the rules. The good guys can't just run into the ring. They have to play by the rules because the ref is standing in their way saying, Hey, no, nothing bad's happening behind my back. You know, and so, and so that guy would be on the sidelines, and then he'd be reaching out for the tag. The tag! The tag! Sometimes you wouldn't even know where the tag is. He'd be in the wrong direction. The guy's over here. And you'd be like, Hulk, come on, get it together! And then the tag would happen and into the ring would come the ultimate warrior. Remember him? Biceps and then a layer on top of that. Biceps. And he'd come into the ring, face paint and ribbons. And he, ribbons? Why? Anyhow, and he'd just start pounding on those other guys. And he'd be like, yeah! And then my wife, my mom, my wife, my mom. <laughs> Oops. Is that it? What would Sigmund Freud say? Anyhow, my mom, <laughs> my mom would come into the room and turn it off. She called it the diaper crew, which I thought was totally emasculating. Anyhow, I'm like, Mom, they're professional wrestlers. Okay. But it was that moment Hulk got help, and they won. Spiritually, this is how it looks like. That same wrestling match is played out. You have... You have uh, people who are under a weight of condemnation. Uh, the, the, what you feel is, well, condemnation is more like the force, but what you feel is shame. What you shame. Let me just quickly differentiate this. Guilt and shame, I, I've heard that they're different, and I think that it's true. I think guilt is more about what you've done. You've done something, you know it's out of alignment with what you shouldn't have done, and so you, you could fix it by saying I'm sorry and making restitution and, and getting forgiveness and and you could go on. Shame is so much harder to deal with because it's not about what you've done, it's about who you are. So what do you do when the voices in your head are telling you you're a failure? Look what you do. Look who you are. That's really hard to get out from under. That's really hard to get out from under. In fact, that's why I love that song we were singing about sin and shame dealt without the cross. So, so, so true. So, so, so true. So here's the average Christian or 
or anybody who deals with shame is, is true, but the average, in the Christian context, it looks like this. Here's the person who's being attacked. In fact, let me give you some scriptures that tell you about what you're up against real quick. Revelation 12.10 talks about the accuser. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, what's his activity? He accuses you before God day and night. That's the first force that you've got to work with. You say, well, you know what? That's a pretty daunting thing, being accused day and night. Do you, do you feel that? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that in your life? Where you feel like there's so much, you're failing, you're failing, you're no good at this. How could God ever love you? Whatever. There's an actual accuser at work. But let me tell you about the second force. This is the tag team that you're working against. And it's, it's um, 1 John 3.20 tells about the other agent that totally you don't see coming. It's the chair to the back is what it is. 1 John 3.20, if our heart condemns us. If our heart condemns us. So not only are you being accused, look at you. Look at who you are. Shame, shame, shame. But then your heart receives that message and echoes it. And now you're getting beat up by two. Your own heart condemns you. Now the rest of these verses are full of hope too, right? Because what's the second part of that? When our own heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. That's the thing we're afraid of. We're afraid that he knows everything. That's the thing we're afraid of other people knowing. We're afraid that if they put us in the spotlight and everything about me was known, they wouldn't love me. And that's where the cross is so powerful in our lives. Because here is a place where somebody knows everything about you and still loves you. The message you'll get repeated in the world again and again to your shame is that if you don't perform, if you're not funny enough, if you're not smart enough, if you're not good enough, if, you're not, if you don't do the things my way, I won't love you. You get conditional love messages all the time. Parents try not to do that. Good parents try not to do that. But you'll get it in the world everywhere around you. If you do, I'll love you. And then you encounter Jesus, and he says, before you do, anything to earn anything with me, I love you. I love you. This is the, this is the, the ultimate warrior coming in the ring. This is the ultimate warrior coming in the ring and, and throwing the enemies off you. The, the cross of Christ. And, it's, and it, it's a work of the Spirit for it to go from your head to your heart. It's a work of the Spirit for it to go from your head to your heart. But when it does, it changes the areas of your life where you, where you formerly was, were, were under the control of shame and you had to hide. You had to be defensive. You had to blame. Now you can be known. Now you can be known. It's safe to be known because actually somebody loves you without your good behavior. Someone loves you 
the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he initiated his love mission, his rescue of our lives before we did anything. And so now we form identity. Identity, that's where the shame comes in, right? It's an identity piece. We form an identity based on what Jesus says about us, not about those voices that have been plaguing us in our lives. We form an identity in a whole different way. So what does Jesus say about us? Let me just go back. I won't have time to read it all this morning, but I'll just go back to Colossians. I love how Colossians ends it. It says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. So we've been, here's a big theological word. I've used it before. I'll just give it to you again because it's sort of hard to really soak in this second truth. You're justified. People have been trying to earn God's love, trying to earn a right standing with God, trying to earn peace with God, and God says, quit trying, start trusting in what I have done. That's the gospel. That's the good news. All you're trying that didn't work, because you form an identity out of trying, it will fail you every time. You say, even if you form what seems like a good identity, you say, I am, I'm, I'm on fire for God. I'm sold out to him. I'm one of God's best servants in Moose Jaw. That's going to fail you. That's going to fail you. You know why it's going to fail you? Because it's totally dependent on your performance, and your performance will not be perfect. And when your performance is not perfect, when you make wrong choices, when you choose selfishly, that will all come crashing down. That identity will come crashing down, and you'll be so discouraged and in despair because now you're God's worst servant. You're his, right? So you can't form an identity based on your performance. It has to be based on his performance. It has to be on on something that's absolutely pure and spotless. And so when the scriptures say that he's reconciled you by God's physical body, by what Jesus did, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, he's talking about the fact that when God sees you, he sees you through the lens of what Jesus has done. So you're justified, but not because you did it, because you can't. You can't earn it. You didn't deserve it. None of us can. But you're justified because of what he did. And justified means just as if you never sinned. Like Jesus lived, right? He lived the per- perfect sinless life. So you get Jesus' righteousness, so it's just as if you never sinned. And it also means just as if you always obeyed. Just like Jesus did. So there's areas in our lives where we don't believe the gospel. And those are access points where the enemy will try to bring in shame. Those will be parts of our lives that often won't work for us. Or if they work, well, it's only because we have a coping mechanism to cover over the fact that it's flawed underneath I'm going to end with this, I think. I had a friend, and he, uh, well, a casual friend, but he's another pastor. He's in a big, 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 big church, really massive church, where you'd think that they'd have every program under the sun. And a guy phoned him one day, and he said, uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been under sort of discipline at work for some of my behavior, and uh, they told me I needed to go get anger management uh, counseling. So I figured since I go to the, the, the big, big church that we have every program under the sun, probably we also have anger management courses. I'd like to take my anger management counseling at the church. And the pastor who is sort of knew all this stuff in charge of these areas, he said, uh, actually, we don't have an anger management course. And he's like, what? You don't have an anger management course? But we're a massive church. Like, why don't we have that? And he said, well, it's not that a church couldn't have that, and it wouldn't be bad for a church to have that. But he said, we don't have an anger management course. He said, go, whatever they're recommending, go take that anger management course, and then they're going to help you cope. They help you manage your anger. And then when you're done, come and see me, and we're going to help you get rid of your anger. This is the difference of the gospel. There are areas of our lives where we're managing it. Maybe we're managing it as good as anyone else is managing with that same problem. We're managing it, but underneath it all is there's still a layer of shame that won't go away. There's a layer of shame that won't go away. But we've hidden it. We've hidden from others. We've, 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 we've deflected it. We've pointed the blame to someone else. Because our shame stems from our sin. And no matter how much you sugarcoat it, it keeps bubbling up. And there's only one place to take sin. In fact, there's only one place where sin was ever thrown that it didn't bounce back. And that's the cross. That's the cross. When sin was thrown on Jesus, it stuck. It says he became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God. And this incredible exchange is available to all people. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be mired in shame. You can have a totally new identity in Christ. And it's through the gospel you begin to believe what he says about you. You're a child of God. You're a minister of reconciliation. In fact, God, God not only says you're part of my family. When you come to believe what he has done for you on the cross, he not only says you're part of my family. He then says now you're my representative in the world. Take the reconciliation I won for you through what Jesus did on the cross and take it to the world. And God is calling us as a people to be able to be fluent in this kind of language so that we can begin to speak it over each other's lives. You're going to encounter in your groups, in your life groups, you're going to encounter some people saying, this is my area of unbelief. Maybe this week they're going to be sharing that, my, my area of personal unbelief, where I, I struggle here, and, and I, I don't know if I believe the gospel, or I don't know how the gospel connects to this area of my life, or I feel like a bad dad, or I feel like a, a terrible wife, or I feel like the world's worst employee. Shame, 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 shame. And how beautiful will it be as we grow in gospel fluency that each one of us could be able to speak, maybe haltingly at first, maybe just a few phrases, but as it grows more and more, the gospel truth into other people's shame and see it removed. And see it removed.
to see it removed. I'll end with this, actually. My little four-year-old. Yeah, we're just going to end. We won't bring the worship team back here at the end because of time. My little four-year-old, he, uh, I was watching a video about this kind of stuff. And the dad uh, in the video was talking about his son, who's very similar age to my son, who's four, almost five. And he said to, he said to uh, uh, the son disobeyed and was a bad kid, whatever. And then, you know, did bad stuff. And then he's speaking to his son, and his son pulls his shirt up over his face. Anyhow, I'm watching this video of telling this story with my son. And, uh, and I paused the video, and he said, I said, do you do that? Do you pull your shirt up over your face when you've done something wrong? And he laughed, because he doesn't do that. He actually, actually hides under the table. But anyhow, he doesn't do the other one, right? So he laughed. He thought that was funny. And I said, I said, I said yeah, daddy too. And so I was hiding. So we were pulled, pulled our collars as high as we could, and we were both being turtles. And we were hiding uh, from our shame, right? But we're, it's just fun, because neither of us had done anything wrong at that moment, right? So we're acting this out. And then, and then I play the video a little bit more, and the dad is telling his son, he says, you don't, you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide because what Jesus did for you. Jesus, Jesus dealt with that shame on the cross. You don't have to be ashamed. You, don't, you, can, you, can, you can turn from your sin immediately. You don't have to go for a long, be away from God for a long time. Or, or, but you can come right back to him right away. You don't have to hide. He's telling his son. And in the story, the son slowly comes out of his turtle position and, and says, I'm sorry, Dad. And he says, I forgive you and God forgives you. And it's all this great reconciliation. So I'm actually, again, us non-guilty people, I'm saying to Jacob, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm just echoing what's in the video. I'm saying, you don't have to hide. And he peeks out his eyes. You don't have to hide because Jesus has done all this already for you. He's taken away your shame. And I'm just saying this to him and he's just having fun with it too. And I thought, like, here it's just light and fun. But I need this message every day in my life. I need this message for my unbelief. I need this message for my shame. You don't have to hide. You can be fully known and fully loved. But you'll only find it in one location. And that's at the cross where Jesus died for you, where he gave his life for you, where he demonstrated how much he loves you, And that that love is without previous conditions. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift of God. Cost him everything. But it's free to you. Would you stand with me? This morning, you might be in, I I don't know where you're at. You might be, I got two ideas. One is, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you say, I, I think I'm twigging on to areas where maybe there is some unbelief because I do experience shame in these areas and it doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to go away. I can sort of manage it or cope, but it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't go away. And I think I need to apply the truth about what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus says about me to that area of my life. And then the second group would be, maybe you're here and you, you say, you know what, I, I've never really put my trust in Jesus and what he has done for me. I've never trusted in before in his work on the cross, but as you're talking about it, I'm drawn to it. I want to trust what he's done for me instead of trusting in what I can do for myself. 
me deal with that one first. If you're there, the response is just trust God. Throw your life on, into his hands. Believe him that he's, he's got incredible plans for your life. That he wants to work good in all the things of your life, in every area of your life. I didn't say make it easy. I said good. He wants to, make, he wants to work good in every area of your life. And tell him that you're his. This could be your day. This could absolutely be your day, your moment, where you just say, wow, I've never done this before, but I just really realized I need God in my life. I need what he can do, but I need him. I need a relationship with God, and I want to begin it today. And just simply tell God, I'm yours. I believe, and I receive your forgiveness. That's how easy God offers you forgiveness. When you know that you're out of place, you know that your sin has made you shame before God because it's a real deal, then just throw yourself on it, onto him and say, okay, I'm yours. Yes to your leadership. Yes to your love. Yes to your forgiveness. Yes to your plans for my life. You can say that just in the quietness of your hearts right now. Maybe you've already been saying it through the message. Just reaffirm that with him today. And for those of you, you, you say, I walk with God, but I still experience shame. It's, it's, it, it, it lingers, it keeps coming back, or it keeps biting me. He, God the Father loves you like he loves Jesus. He loves you like he loves Jesus. When he sees you, he sees you with the righteousness of Christ. All your sins, past, present, and future, were covered by what Jesus did on the cross. I'm just telling you the truth, and it's a work of the Spirit that that truth could actually take root in your heart. That you'd see yourself as a new person in Christ. That you'd abandon the attempts to make yourself good enough for God, and you'd recognize that Jesus did everything needed for you to be right with God. Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. And it's trust in his work and not in our own. No more striving, no more trying to be good enough for God. We can't ever do that. We put that down, we put all that down, and we latch on to him. We stop looking at ourselves so much as the central character who's going to make the difference. We look to Jesus and say, you're the one who makes the difference. Jesus, would you apply these truths about you into the stubborn areas of our hearts? Maybe they're areas that have never believed or never really reckoned with the truth of what you've done for us before. Lord, I especially ask for those areas where uh, the enemy has used accusation, condemnation, and shame to keep people away from you. Patterns of hiding, patterns of defensiveness, and patterns of blame that are all just self-protection because we're really afraid you won't love us if you know us. But you say... You know us. You knew us in our mother's womb, even as we did this baby or child dedication this morning. You knew Nora from her mother's womb. You knew all of us from that, that stage. And you loved us. 
And even when we are in our darkest moments of selfishness, that love did not stop beaming towards us full force. It's going to take some getting used to, Lord, to understand your love and your grace for us. It's going to take some getting used to, but Lord, we ask that you'd change us from the inside out, change the parts of us that don't believe your grace, that think, no, no, I still got to do it. I got to still earn it. I still got to prove myself to God. I got to earn my way back. I got to stay far enough away until I've atoned for what I did. Lord, help us to run to you and to be close to you and to trust that we can be in the space with you and be safe because of what Jesus has done that we are righteous in your sight. Yeah. So I just pray for any words of shame, Lord Jesus, any statements of shame that have been uh, placed there and that have taken some deep roots, I ask that they be plucked out, Lord Jesus. I ask that words that are, are not to be repeated again, not to be believed again, I ask that they be pulled out by the roots and they be replaced with truth. So someone who's trying to prove themselves to God relaxes and trusts that they are a child of God. And someone who's felt accusation for all the roles and responsibilities in their lives that they blew so many of them or all of them or that they're blowing them all right now, that you'd come into their lives and begin to speak about how you are calling them to look to you, calling them to fix their eyes on you, calling them to self-forgetfulness, not looking at their own behavior right now, but looking to you, the, the one who started them on the road of faith, the one who will lead them to the very finish line, the one who says that they're righteous. Hmm. Yeah. Lord, help us all. Help us all with our unbelief. Lead us. You're such a great leader, an incredible leader, incredible guide in our lives. And so we look to you, we trust you, we love you, and uh, Lord, I pray that um, strongholds in our lives would just be demolished in these next few weeks. Strongholds in our lives would be demolished. There's ones that we don't even know yet. You and your grace have not even chose to reveal them yet. And when you reveal them, we might get discouraged. But Lord, we trust you. We trust you that what you reveal, you will deal. We trust you. We love you. In your name. Amen.